bringing you our latest series on navigating the energy transition, a podcast series where RBC Capital Markets experts and guest speakers share their insights on the latest trends and opportunities in energy transition. Good morning or good afternoon. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. I'm James Edwards-Jones, head of RBC's Consumer Staples team in Europe. My Canadian counterpart, Ari Natel, and I will be hosting today's session, the latest of RBC's energy transition series, looking at the consumer sector. Uh, we're delighted to welcome three such impressive panellists. First, Eski Barsanas from AB InBev, the world's largest brewer. Eski is the global VP of sustainability at ABI. She's responsible for AB InBev's sustainability program, both its development and execution, and the delivery of the company's 2025 goals, sustainability goals. She also oversees the 100 plus accelerator fund, which invests in startups, which are developing solutions which can contribute to those goals. Second, Kevin Grove, Loblaw's head of corporate affairs. Loblaw's Canada's leading retailer, and Kevin's team is responsible for, among a lot of other things, corporate and social responsibility, ESG, and community investment. And third, Deborah Byers, Ernst & Young's, or EY's, I'm never quite sure what it, which it is, America's sector leader and member of the America's Executive Committee. She knows a lot about the energy transition, from social to financial to economic implications. As well as everything else, she advises EY's board on, around long-term investment decisions relating to resources and technology. So that's enough from me. Perhaps I could start by asking each of you in turn, maybe maybe starting with you, Eski, say something about your business and what the energy transition means to you and to your business, to ABI. Thank you, James and Irene, for, for having me today and, and the RBC team and really excited to be on the panel and, and meet Kevin and Deborah. Um, so at AB InBev, we've got operations around the world across 50 plus markets. So for us, you know, if I take a step back and the way we look at sustainability is, is really, it, it makes business sense because uh, for us, we're trying to build that value chain resilience all the way from uh, what we call C to SIP and even beyond SIP and how we think about our packaging materials. Um, and, you know, for us, this is first and foremost about supply security, uh, whether that's our raw materials, it's our, you know, crops or energies or, or water. Uh, of course, uh, it's about innovation, how we think about future of packaging, future of logistics, future of our, of our business. Um, and, you know, also about our, our own colleagues, you know, how do we give them a sense of purpose, a sense of pride uh, in, in being part of, uh, you know, AB InBev. And last but not least, our consumers, especially as we're seeing a rise in conscious consumerism, uh, we're seeing consumers look for brands and companies that share their ideals and, and values and principles. And uh, for us, you know, sustainability makes business sense. And it is about engaging the entire value chain and really building a company for the next 100 plus years. And especially as we look at, into our sustainability goals, and you briefly mentioned, James, our 2025 sustainability commitments, uh, we have two specific goals uh, that will allow us to be part of that and contribute to that energy transition. And those are 100% renewable electricity commitment by 2025. And right now, to date, we have contracted over 70% of our global electricity volume to come from renewables. We're really excited about that progress. Uh, we do that through uh, power purchase agreements uh, and, and you know, help, uh, help uh, build wind farms, solar farms, and really kind of um, you know, 
create that uh, demand uh, for that infrastructure to be built uh, for us to offtake that renewable capacity uh, from the markets everywhere we operate because we really want to bring that additional capacity. And then the, the last piece is our climate action goal, which is 25% emission reduction across our entire uh, value chain. So that's scopes one, two, and three. And we have a science-based target that puts us in line with 1.5 degree pathway. So again, looking to really uh, reduce our emissions by 25% against the 2017 baseline in a matter of eight years. Uh, really ambitious goals, but for us, this is about the future and innovation. That's, that's very clear, Eski. Thank you. Kevin, can I, can I ask you the same question, please? Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, as you alluded to, we're a, a Canadian retail leader. So what that means uh, in, in practice is we're the largest retailer in Canada with about 2,500 stores. Uh, that's a mix of grocery and pharmacy. Um, and we are also the keepers of uh, Canada's two largest food brands. So actually our private label brands rank one and two against global multinationals. Um, so obviously the opportunity for us to deliver against CSR uh, initiatives and customer expectations is, is significant both across um, operations, but also the brands we control. Um, historically, we have uh, uh, made a point of, of demonstrating leadership in, in CSR and the two guiding factors historically have been uh, what do our customers expect of us? And uh, the second is is the opportunity for impact. And again, with as large a footprint as we have, those opportunities are, are considerable. Um, there's also an underlying legacy to the company. Uh, we trace our roots back 140 years in Canada. Uh, our current chairman and president is the fourth generation family leader of our company. And that allows us a, a great luxury in the world of CSR, which is we can, can think in, in decades, we can think in generations. And ultimately, as we make commitments, um, we know the name will be the same on the front of, of the business. And, and so that's a great strength, I think, when you're talking about you know, today's topic and, and an energy transition that's uh, scheduled to take decades. Um, so this idea of the long view has taken us across the business. Uh, you know, we were the first in Canada to introduce a green brand as an example. Uh, we were a major force in the in the move to sustainable seafood in Canada. We've made a, a, a string of commitments around ingredients and products. Uh, diversity and inclusion is a, is a increasingly a strong point for us. And uh, when it comes to carbon, we were one of the first in, in the nation to line up behind the Paris Agreement in line with the, the Canadian federal government to, uh, to make a 30% commitment by 2030. So um, I think over the course of, um, of, of the chat today, there's a, a few dynamics that are very Canadian. And if I can bring that perspective of one market with some complex dynamics and big goals, uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully that's my contribution. Yeah, very much so. Given, given I guess that Esky's coming at it from a for, for, from a global standpoint, it'll be very interesting to hear the the different approaches that those, that those require. Um, and I guess Deborah, as someone not specifically involved in the consumer staples sector, in the consumer sector, uh, what, what 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 are your thoughts, Deborah? Oh, thank you for having me on, James. And um, as you say, um, we do like EY, so we we uh, like that moniker. It's a little easier for everybody to remember. So thank you for giving me that choice. Um, so for those of us, you know, I think most people know EY is one of the big four. We have 300,000 plus employees uh, globally. And, you know, this concept of energy transition and my background is in energy. Um, I was the energy leader prior to taking this role, uh, overseeing all of our sectors across the Americas. 
and uh, it is very central to really all of our clients across the entire value chain. And I and I heard Ezzy uh, really refer to that value chain. I think we're going to get into that topic of how important that is when we think about the the aspirational goals we have around sustainability, reduction of emissions, and. So at EY, for example, in the U.S., uh, we've made uh, the commitment to be net zero, and we actually achieved that globally in 2020. And you might say, well, you know, we did have the lockdown, and that certainly helped. But even prior to that, we 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 did make that commitment. We're committed to being net zero uh, and net negative in, in the near future. And like Ezzy's uh, uh, company, uh, we also entered into a power purchase agreement and committed to to um, support renewable capacity here in the U.S. by uh, investing in capacity from uh, wind farms. So we're really living that value, which is, you know, the theme here at EY, but also taking what we are doing ourselves and our knowledge of what is happening more broadly around the energy transition. Um, I like to think about it as a transformation because we're going to need all sources of energy for uh, the foreseeable future to really power the the economy and the developing uh, world. But um, uh, we'll talk. I'll, I'll mention a few things around that topic and how do our clients then navigate really what is incredibly challenging. And we think about the the biggest challenges in in achieving these goals that we have around, whether it's net zero, net negative, is the fact that uh, scope three, I think someone mentioned that, scope three are these indirect emissions that your company would be responsible for. So it's kind of easy to control your direct emissions. Um, what, you know, cause you, you're, you've got trucks, you own factories, you own machines that are, um, that, that you control. And then scope two, sort of your indirect emissions, you can also sort of manage that and you have line of sight into that. And so that's your elect, you know, electricity use. So we talk about you know, investing in renewable capacity to provide that offset and really also foster the growth of renewables. But that scope three, where the vast majority of the issues are, are these indirect all the way down to the consumer going forward and then all the way back to the source of you know, your products and, and the source of your power. And I think the visibility is one, you know, having visibility into your suppliers and vendors, that information is not readily available. Measurement and then standardizing that measurement. And this is all the things that, that we're trying to uh, support our clients in, in what are the right standards? Because they, they may need to vary by, by industry. And for this particular sector on the consumer side, it's really important to have consistent measures. And and then finally, what are the costs and who pays? So that's kind of where we're focused in working with our clients as well as ourselves. Uh, thank you for those opening remarks. That's fascinating and, and a lot in there uh, to unpack. So um, maybe I'll kind of start sort of from the beginning. Um, Kevin, you mentioned sort of that you're focused about, you know, it's customers, it's the opportunity for impact. If we take a step back, um, really, what was the driving force? What is the driving force? And, you know, what do you see the role of a retailer consumer goods company and, you know, specifically Loblaw, but also more generally in this in this entire process? 
Yeah, I think it's a, the starting point is, I guess, a great place to start, as they say. Um, so there's there's really two tracks. The first is we started looking at our carbon footprint in 2011. And when I say looking, I mean measuring it concretely. And as any business would, we looked for efficiencies within in the existing business, um, you know, the cliche of low hanging fruit and then uh, a, a step plan from there. And if you um, think about maybe how we were looking at it, there's a baseline, you know, practical, technical efficiency element to it. And then there's the X factor of, of uh, uh, you know, the consideration of upcoming policy or what costs may be down the line. And we've done an exceptional job on a 2011 base baseline of, of really getting at the efficiency piece of it and just sort of um, moving forward, irrespective of, I'll call it the CSR or ESG dynamic to this. So, uh, you, you know, just for, for uh, illustrative purposes, that's simple changes like LED lights. It's sim simple changes like, uh, you know, electrical efficiency um, uh, methods, including um, where I think we're a leader right now is sort of centralized control of our stores. I mentioned we've got a, a, a massive store chain and uh, we actually have central control of good uh, chunks of it, certainly the corporate owned and run uh, operations, we can actually oversee energy use and, and toggle that to uh, to optimize. So I think if we if we tip into this sort of how did this start from an ESG or a CSR perspective, uh, obviously COP21 and the Paris Agreement was a big piece for us. And, and that was, um, you know, our, our interest in, in putting a leadership stake down in line with the, the country. So as I said in my intro, that was a 30% uh, reduction by 2030. Uh, we've achieved that. So that's uh, uh, remarkable. And it, it it's also linked very simply back to the changes we were already doing. And then the addition of, of uh, a better understanding of, of the contributions to our carbon footprint. So I'll give you one example. A major uh, uh, contributor to the footprint is refrigerant leaks. You know, it's one thing to power the refrigerators. It's another when the refrigerants leak. That's a major <clears throat> challenge for any retailer or anyone with um, a cold chain. And so we got after that and we've spent money and, and uh, found solutions and, and, uh, and corrected that. So here we are at, at 30% many, many years early, and we've uh, adjusted that uh, to a 50% target. And obviously, as we, we look ahead, uh, the question then becomes, uh, you know, the conversation is obviously around net neutral now. And I mentioned we're a, uh, a long view company with a generational perspective, and we're also very cautious about making, uh, making claims or commitments we can't deliver. But certainly that's the conversation now is uh, what would it take where is the technology going? Who are our partners in this? You know, and really, um, our mindset now is how small can we squeeze the footprint? And then beyond that, what are the solutions? And that takes us into you know topics like carbon credits and topics like really nascent or sort of at this point imaginary technologies that are gonna gonna take us to Shangri-La, right? And and uh, um, so that's that's where our our mindset is right now is. Um, you know, how credible are we in terms of uh, a net, net neutral uh, pledge at this point? And, and, you know, we are kicking those tires. And then uh, how credible are the component pieces that could get us there? Uh, that's great. Thank you. What, what about you, Eski, in, in, within the context of your global footprint? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, this for us is really materiality. You know, we look at 
um, what I would call non-financial issues that are material to our business success and also important to our stakeholders. And we really map that out and that informs and influences our sustainability strategy. But at the heart of it, what we really look for is, um, again, that, that resilience component, which I mentioned earlier. Um, because our business is so closely tied to uh, the local communities where we live and work and we operate and, and, and the natural environment, you know, all the way from agricultural crops to water uh, being our key ingredients. Uh, you know, we require raw materials for packaging. Uh, we need energy and fuel to, to brew and, and transport our, our beers. So for us, this really is, again, about that, that value chain resilience and that materiality and, and to ensure that, um, you know, to ensure business continuity uh, into the future. Um, so uh, that's that's what really one element. And what we really look at is, in addition to kind of what are our climate-related impact or footprint in the world, what are also the climate-related risks to our value chain and how do we manage that? You know, what are those risks and opportunities for our business? How does that inform our strategy, our, whether it's our sourcing strategy for our barley-growing regions, for example, or it's about how, um, you know, we put ourselves out there and, and, and really look for circular packaging solutions. Again, uh, it's, a, it's a big component. Uh, if you look at packaging, it's a big piece of our um, you know, carbon emissions around the world. So uh, it really, uh, we look for opportunities that will enable us to, to continue to, to innovate and rethink our value chain in our business so that we can create that resilience. That's right. I and mean, again, presumably, you know, if I can mention climate oh, change, we know that uh, there's water stress around the world. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Sorry, I apologize. I can't see any of you, so so um, I, I apologize for cutting you off. Please continue, Asgi. Uh, no worries. I I know you are having some uh, technical challenges, Irene. Um, yeah. So you know, for us, for example, if you think about water stress and the growing water stress uh, that is compounded by climate change, what does that mean for us? Not only in the watersheds we operate in, but also upstream in our uh, agricultural supply chains. And how do we continue to innovate around those and and really uh, ensure that that high quality uh, barley crop, for example, is really the way we think about. It. So the driving force behind all of this is really business continuity and, and resilience. Uh, that's fascinating. Presumably, Deborah, you know, although we're speaking about the consumer space in particular, the nature of this dialogue is something that you've seen, you know, across other industries as well. Yeah, no, I, I was going to say, first of all, um, Kevin, I mean, to achieve the 30 percent reduction that, you know, your goal was 2030 and to do it now, I think it is really um you know, an, a great achievement. And, and what I like about it is we tell our clients, you know, you want to kind of take it in bite sizes. I mean, it's easy to really come out and have these very aspirational 2050 goals, but what you really have to do, and especially as we think about what investors and our, our stakeholders are looking for, they do want to see you make concrete steps. And I think you get a lot of credit uh, for at least taking what you control within your own business and 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 you know reducing your footprint as much as possible but uh what Ezzy talked about there's so much in what she's talking about because climate change is you know obviously more than just the co2 emissions and in fact um you know greenhouse gases is broader than co2 so when i talk about transformation around the energy sector so if we start there you, you need energy along this entire value chain in order to get to that that end customer. And then the customer itself is is also a user. But, you know, there's transformation has to take three three uh, parts. And I think that you can bring this into the, your resilient uh, operations. So it, had, it, it needs to get cleaner. 
So this is why I think transformation is a more descriptive word. It needs to be cleaner. So whether that's renewables or whether it's uh, just you, you are capturing emissions, um, methane emissions in your production activities, or just you know refrigerant leaks. This is this is going to be really important. So not just I'm going to use um, a zero emissions power, but also in my own business. And I think that's very important that to be incorporated as part of what you're delivering. Efficiency. It's often overlooked, but efficiency has has has. Uh, really been a huge driver in the re in the reduction of energy intensity which is good because now we're using less uh we're burning less fossil fuels we're we're requiring less energy and even renewables you know the materials that go into building a solar panel or or a wind farm you know they they leave a carbon footprint all along that way and so any anytime you can increase efficiency and lower energy intensity in all of your operation that's incredibly important that there's a lot of technological space there that's not Shangri-La that I think, you know, we that R&D innovation and looking at that ecosystem to drive more efficiency. And then sustainability, the water nexus around um, and land use are, uh, along the entire value chain is going to get increasingly more important. Um, and, you know, certain forms of energy are more energy intensive, especially if you go all the way back to, uh, you know, the initial source of that. So that's going to be incredibly important. And when we talk about sustainability, um, you know, it's reuse and re, re, reduce and reuse, right? So this is more whether you call it as an individual lifestyle change or whether as a company you're looking at, you know, really embracing the circular economy within the businesses and, the, and within the value chain that you operate. That's going to be really important. So that's kind of why I talk about it as transformation. Um, and, you know, we don't need Shangri-La for that. I think there are real concrete technologies out there that uh, if we, you know, apply them and leverage them in our businesses that you, you really can achieve some of these goals that, that uh, companies have made as well as investors and consumers are looking for you to achieve. That's, I, well, there's, there, there, there's so many points you made in there, Deborah, but I mean, perhaps... One of the things that's already come up a few times is the scope three, scope three emissions having to uh, having to actually take action the whole way up and down the supply chain. Um, what what works best in this sort of context? It's obviously not not entirely natural for for customers to be thinking two three steps up their supply chain or or down their supply chain. How do you measure this stuff and what what works best, Deborah? Well, I think that there's, you know, quite a, quite a number of really outstanding programs out there. So, you know, whether it's financial measures um, with, you know, TCEF and other financial standards that are starting to converge to create consistent financial measurements so we can have transparency and have apples to apples as to what people are reporting. But I think there's still quite a challenge to have uh, that transparency through the supply chain because, there's information that you know vendors are not as as you know happy to share. There's reluctance to share that information, um, and, and not because I think anybody's trying to hide anything. It's just this, some of it is really their tradecraft, and and so some of that information is going to be difficult to gain and hide and gain. You know, can't that that transparency element is going to be really important. And, and companies are going to have to feel comfortable that they can put that information out there for the benefit of all 
um, so that they can, you know, truly measure their footprint, but then not be giving up anything that is, you know, proprietary to the company. And so I know that there are some elements. So if you want traceability of where your product came from, you know, there are some uh, leading edge practices using blockchain, for example, to try to verify all along the chain where, you know, where the final source was. And, and so I think these types of technologies that information that's sensitive, maybe even protect um, you know, specific identifying companies or information, but then still validates where it came from, validates, you know, the assertion you're making around the source of that and, and the total emissions related to that is, is going to be important. Excuse me. Is that, is that a fair description of what you're finding? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we have talked about scope three, but I want to quickly flag here that for us as a business, over 85% of our entire emissions sit in scope three. So that's the indirect emissions, as, as Deborah mentioned earlier. And, and you know, it is critical for us to to engage our entire value chain and, and of course, upstream in, in, in the supplier base. And how do we enable that that transition to a low carbon energy, uh, to a low carbon economy, I think is incredibly important. So, you know, going back to your question around how do we measure this? We follow the GHG protocol, the scope three guidance to measure our footprint and really uh, have, we have established a good understanding of that, but at the same time, as again Deborah mentioned, you know uh, we are looking into the framework that TCFD is putting out there, the Task Force uh, for um, Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, that will give us that forward-looking view, right? Because if you look at any other kind of measurement or, or rating out there, it really looks at past performance. But what's really unique about TCFD is it's going to allow us to look into the future and really better understand what are the impacts to our business, how do we continue to design? Um, you know, the way we think about it is really sustainability is a design problem and sustainability could be the ultimate brief for design. And I think that is so unique in, in how we engage with our suppliers. And, you know, I, I would I would agree that, yes, there's some hesitation when you approach other companies and your suppliers, big or small, in trying to create that shared target, that shared vision. But at the same time, I think over the last couple of years, we've really seen that huge momentum shift in our suppliers wanting to do more with us, wanting to pilot more, you know, uh, with us, uh, wanting to co-innovate with us, uh, you know, bring some of the, the the new innovations through brand facing or consumer facing uh, platforms through our, our, our unique brands, uh, you know, some of our iconic brands around the world. So I really think there's good momentum, uh, whether that's in our, you know, packaging supply chain, logistics, refrigeration, uh, there's a lot of solutions out there. And a couple of years ago, we formed actually almost three years ago now, we developed an, uh, a sustainability uh, dedicated collaboration platform for our supply chain called Eclipse. And to date, we have over 50 of some of our largest suppliers that are part of that, uh, that, that platform that come together, share best practices, improve you know, their communication, their, um, you know, uh, sharing their ambitions around SDGs uh, that are most critical to their business success, but also our business success. And as I said, you know, I, think, I think there's good momentum, but we're only scratching the surface. I think uh, huge potential for sure ahead. This idea of ecosystems is really important. And you could see kind of an evolution where you know, there's a lot of, a preferred supplier list includes those that are are really committed to that ecosystem, really transparent. And then, you know, that's going to drive sort of more economic incentives uh, that, you know, to to join that ecosystem, but also to comply with and, and reduce their own emissions and, and provide that almost a certification back to to you as a as a consumer as a consumer of their services. So they, these ecosystems are starting to form. So I, I I think you're exactly right. 
Kevin, I, as you mentioned, that 85% of ABN Web's emissions are scope three emissions, so not, not directly attributable to ABI. I'm, I'm guessing that for a retailer in an enormous country, it's probably rather less than 85%. Is, is, is that fair? And I guess the same question to you around what you can do and what you are doing about those scope three, scope three emissions. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, uh, Eski summarized it really well, which is the major challenge of this would be scope three. And certainly, uh, uh, if you look at science-based targets, anything greater than a 40% con contribution from, from scope three emissions requires a, a sort of disclosure and planning against that. And, and so you hit the nail on the head. I mean, if I take it in a slightly different direction, as the nation's largest retailer, we, are also, we, we also run the, probably the nation's largest fleet uh, both owned uh, vehicles and and third party vehicles and and you know maybe postal services have more but but in terms of sort of private businesses running things on roads um, that would be a major contributor to to our footprint and and so I think about uh, the partnerships that are are taking shape in that space around um, you know we purchased Tesla trucks uh, uh, not so long ago uh, we ran what we believed was the first ever potentially globally, but certainly in North America, the first ever uh, zero emissions uh, class eight, so 53 foot truck uh, grocery delivery. Uh, we are putting solar panels on roofs of trucks. Um, you know, we're, we uh, have, uh, we're, a, a, an early and new entrant into uh, autonomous vehicles. And and so much of what we run in terms of products going to stores are short haul trips, which work really well for an autonomous vehicle. And as it happens, uh, electric vehicles work really well in, a, in sort of a short haul hub and spoke model. So we have that opportunity to give our, uh, effectively what are our suppliers, our fleet partners, the opportunity to test those products. So I think whether you're talking about uh, uh, tangible sort of consumable products or or a supplier relationship uh, like a trucking fleet, um, th this idea, as hokey as it sounds, this idea of partnership and piloting and testing and, and moving the needle forward. If the big companies can't do that, the small companies don't stand a chance. And, and I think that's the hat we wear when we talk about whether it's carbon or plastics, obviously, you know, climate change in general. Uh, if we're not there to test with our biggest partners, it will be a very difficult road for the smallest partners. And for us, um, you know, one of our points of pride is we work with a lot of small guys. We work with a lot, a lot of uh, uh, local producers, processors who, you know, if you look at the biggest companies in, in Canada on the, on the TSX index, I think there are eight with a net zero uh, emissions uh, target of the biggest. Um, there are something like 27%, 25% who, who have targets, stated targets. So that's of the biggest, 25 are sort of at, at the level of putting things on paper and, and, and committing. And so, as I say, the smaller uh, players need to look up and see the larger players moving this ball forward. The one other thing I would say is, is uh, obviously in the true interpretation of net zero and the, and the kind of ultimate here would be if, if end to end, absolute end to end, we, we got this right. And a big piece of our focus in terms of our own footprint, but also this idea of moving industry forward is um, 
uh, increasingly our relationships with the the grid operators, with the with the supply side, and and again the theme is partnership. We're we're working uh, just as one example. We're working very closely with government uh, on our load management. So if we can do that in off peak hours, it allows uh, cleaner supply. So if we can do that as one of the largest energy consumers in the country, in what I'll, I'll say is a very complicated market when it comes to energy. Uh, then, then maybe that's inspiration or uh, or or the leading edge for uh, for the uh, for the industry and and again the smaller players. The one other theme maybe I'd, I'd touch on because I, I I think it's a good one uh, and and jumps off of of what Esky and Deborah were saying is um, there are other examples in in uh, supplier relationships. So I'll use the example of plastics or biodiversity or food waste. Um, these are our big picture topics where we're seeing good global momentum. We're a Canadian player, but we we attach ourselves to to global companies on on this front. And working through Consumer Goods Forum, which is the assembly of the largest uh, uh, retailers and, and and CPG manufacturers in the world, on topics like this, oftentimes one of the deliverables of a plan and a commitment is that you take that plan and you take that commitment and you take it back to your supplier base. And to me, I think that's a, a, a great model to say, you know, what's happening, what's modern, what's upcoming, who's testing it, who's sharing it, and how are we rolling it out more broadly? That, that's, that's really interesting. And, and uh, you know, clearly um, this whole topic requires tremendous collaboration among um, a, or amidst a broad range of stakeholders. You know, if we look at law of laws, not only do you run Canada's largest fleet and Canada's largest retailer, you're also Canada's largest private sector employer. Um, and I'm assuming that, you know, ABI has a very significant, you know, employee footprint. And that's just, you know, another stakeholder example. Um, maybe we could spend a few minutes talking about the reaction um, or the focus areas of, of the multiple stakeholders and what stakeholder response has been. Um, you know, Kevin, maybe uh, we'll continue with you uh, and then we can you know, throw it over to Esgi. Sure, I can probably be brief because I'm not sure this will be a big surprise. Uh, I think the last number I saw was about 90% of Canadians see climate change as as a top issue, but one third say it's more important than any other issue. Um, we are a, uh, I'll call it climate educated population, but what climate educated means is a broad broad definition. Um, if you ask Canadians how it is a, a big company like Loblaw could could manage their footprint. I, I, I'm not sure they could give a very detailed answer. And the other piece is unlike some of the plastics work we do, for example, where people are picking up packaging, a lot of what we do on, on the uh, carbon footprint file is, is invisible. It's refrigerants, it's energy management, it's load management. Where it's not invisible, um, I think the, the, the mindset needs to be, we're not an energy company, we're a, a customer service company. And uh, so when we dim our lights to manage our, our energy load, um, that can't come at the, the cost of, of um, a consumer experience. Or if it does, we need to make people aware. So where we make people aware that the lights are dimmer because of energy management, uh, it gets high marks. But we don't want to diminish the, the experience. Um, similarly, if you look at, at uh, uh, sort of where we um, 
are looking at technologies and the reliability of, of certain energy sources and the grid, um, we will get into big trouble if we have fridges that are down for too long, whether that's experience, customer safety, the cost of, of, of goods that go bad. So this idea of, of sort of a simple, uh, you know, we dim the lights to use less energy and don't people love us. A lot of what we're doing is either invisible or can't come at, at, um, at, at, at their expense. And then there's the literal expense side of things. And I think, uh, you know, perhaps we'll get into this, but, but the idea of who bears the cost is an interesting one because with few exceptions, uh, with few exceptions, uh, I would say consumers are reticent to pay more for uh, commitments that a company makes, even if those commitments align with their values. So that's a, that's a dial we need to toggle very, very carefully. Absolutely. What about you, Eski? Overall, I would say the stakeholder response has been very positive and, and, you know, they're all pushing us to do more, which is, which is really encouraging. Um, you know, if I look at the public and our communities, you know, we're part of local heritages everywhere we operate around the world or many places where we operate around the world. And, um, you know, we have, we have a legacy, we have a legacy of responsibility. We have been and continue to be part of the solution, you know, during, um, during challenging times as well, you know, like we've seen during, during the pandemic. Um, and you know, that's one piece where, you know, we show up every day in those communities as a member of the community, as a, as a, as a global citizen. Um, if I look at our consumers, you know, I briefly mentioned uh, this before, our consumers are increasingly looking for more authenticity and purpose. Yes, there is that rise in, in, in conscious consumerism. Um, you know, they are demanding more transparency. I think Deborah mentioned this before. Um, so, yes, definitely uh, greater um, engagement and, and definitely uh, that, that willingness to, to learn more and, and engage with us more. If I look at our customer side, and I think this is where Kevin mentioned it uh, beautifully too, you know, we've got about 6 million retailers that, that we partner with around the world, many, many of whom are, are SMEs, small, medium-sized enterprises, they're mom and pop shops. And, you know, we are working closely with them to pilot solutions to uh, enable that transition uh, so that, you know, their electricity consumption can, can switch to a renewable source, again, with the same principle of bringing that additionality, bringing that independence from the grid. Um, and then helping drive that that low carbon future. So I think, you know, the more we educate ourselves on on, on renewables, and the more uh, we go and source it for our, our own business, uh, the more we can go and do these things with our with our value chain as well. And I think this is where uh, we're going to see uh, greater interests and 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 uh, demand from our retailer partners as well, where we can share those learnings, we can share the best practices. You know, we can uh, find how you know renewables are are. Uh, being operationalized in one market and bring them in another market, you know, with the would-be cost, right? You know, really understanding what that structure looks like, what are the enabling policies in place or that you need to put in place to create that competitive marketplace. So um, definitely, you know, all around. And, and similarly with our colleagues, again, you know, our, our employees, uh, they are looking for that that sense of pride, that sense, sense, sense of purpose and um, uh, definitely uh, very positive engagement and, and uh, good momentum. And, and Deborah, presumably, you know, what we're hearing from Kevin and what, what we're hearing from Esgi, um, you know, partnership obviously has to be a huge element of this entire process, correct? You know, I don't want to repeat everything everybody said, but um, really there's three um, stakeholders that are really critically important. Investors, which you all talked about, the government and the regulators, which and then the consumers. But the point that Kevin made is is critical there's cost and reliability and quality. And so 
you know, the who bears that cost and you still have to maintain that that quality and reliability to your customer. And, and those are incredibly important. And we've done our own surveys. And I think, you know, uh, Kevin, you're probably referring to several of the surveys that were done. While everyone wants uh, and understands that the, the climate change is a very, very important topic, it's incredibly high on the agenda, not only of the Canadian population, but the U.S. as well. And yet when you drop down to how much they're willing to pay for renewably sourced uh, product, it's a very small number. And people, I think part of this is there's a gap of understanding of, of what that cost is and, and how do we then you know share that cost. So I think those are really important elements. And then the, the other point that I wanted to pick up that's critically important that Kevin and as he also mentioned, but this concept of engaging with the utilities and, and the grid operators, that's critically important, especially if you're looking at electrification uh, options to, you know, electrify your fleet, the point-to-point transportation, that's that's critical and, and a real, as you say, low-hanging fruit to reduce your, your direct operational footprint. But you need that public-private partnership operation because you need the grid operator, you need the mobility operator, so your transportation providers. And then you really need that technology element. And what's really exciting is technology is come way up the curve. And, and so you really need to put those three elements together to create that public-private partnership, ongoing R&D in order to bring that, that uh, uh, to bring really the, the potential for electrification down, especially around the transportation sector. And, and demand management is something that, again, is low-hanging fruit. Technology is there. You know, we really got to embrace it. Uh, we've actually had a question come in from online uh, from one of the participants asking about uh, something that, you know, is, is really critical uh, just in terms of this, perhaps less so about energy transition, but the whole ESG piece, uh, particularly as it pertains to the food supply chain, and that's around food waste. And, you know, to the extent that's a focus, for for you and whether technologies um, are evolving that that may be able to help on that front. Do you want me to jump on that one, Irene? Sure, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, so we, we consider food waste part of our uh, carbon footprint and we have since I would say 2018, maybe 2017, had a goal of uh, cutting our, our food waste in half, 50% by uh, 2025. And uh, like our, our broader carbon footprint, we're making amazing traction on that. And the uh, there was sort of a real hockey stick curve of our progress there when we, we seemed to crack a few codes. One was some complex, uh, sort of sophisticated um I'll call it order modeling uh, that we did and flow modeling that we did to make sure that products were hitting the stores at the right time. And, you know, for anyone who's done any work in this, if you, if you look at something like the waste profile of, of a raspberry, it's pretty jarring what the impact could be of an extra day on a truck, an extra day in a back room, you know, an extra hour outside of, of uh, uh, refrigerated temperatures and actually even the weather outside. So given it's a seasonal uh, uh, product, the weather outside can can really uh, play havoc. So using that as kind of the proxy, if you can sort of shape your model around how you flow that product and when you put it on the shelf and how you put it on the shelf. Um, and 
quite honestly, how much you order of it. So one of the big challenges for, for food companies, and we, we run the gamut from discount formats where it's really about getting product out and in front of the, client, the customer so they can pick it up. And we, we have uh, um, uh, more conventional stores where, where presentation and, and display and abundance is, is uh, better. Well, on either end of those, you're, you're running risks, right? Understanding those risks and managing them through technology and then uh, and then sort of a change of operations has been massively effective for us. The other interesting technology for us is uh, is something called flash food and and we were a very early partner the the, the Canadian exclusive for a young guy who came up with an idea um, which was basically put a fridge at the front of the store. Uh, as product nears its best before date, drop its uh, price substantially, you know, big deals, um, put it in the fridge and people can not only access the inventory, but can buy it from their phone, walk up, show a code, grab their stuff and, and be gone. And so you can imagine if you order too many packages of hot dogs and those things are trucking toward their best before date and you're going to end up throwing them out. Um, putting them on a deep discount uh, through a, a app-enabled uh, purchase method, um, they're gone. They're, they fly. And so the combination of those things, plus what I would call a kind of spiritual cultural shift about, you know, food waste is just wrong, um, has us trending really substantially well. That's right. Flash food is great. It, it, it works brilliantly. Um, what about for you, Asgi? Yeah, I, I wanted to bring a couple examples as well there. Um, you know, this is, when we think about this, for us, it is about circularity. Um, so, you know, two, two quick examples that come to mind. Um, so after barley grain is harvested, the straw is typically left in the field, in, in the farmer's field, right, uh, waiting to be tilled, burned, sold um, at low values. So um, this really unique technology that our R&D arm has developed, our Global Innovation Technology Center based in, in Belgium, uh, is, you know, we are working um, with that barley straw to uh, create upcycled uh, renewable paper. So uh, recently, you may have seen a couple of weeks ago, our Corona brand has announced a pilot um, uh, that launched six-pack cartons made uh, using barley straw. Uh, so that is one quick example. Another one uh, that I want to quickly highlight, what we're calling saved grain or, or uh, you know, the, the spent grain at the end of the brewing process um, to um, uh, launch this ingredient company called, called Evergrain um, and, and really looking at, you know, how do we, um, you know, re reuse or, or fulfill the potential of, of barley after it's been used to make beer and repurpose it into other, you know, ingredients to be used in other food and, and, and uh, beverages. And we recently announced a hundred million dollar investment in our St. Louis, uh, uh, St. Louis campus where, um, you know, we're putting in place a plant uh, to be able to do that and, and, and to be able to, um, uh, you know, uh, utilize that, that spent grain after the brewing process uh, and turn it into uh, sustainable plant-based uh, ingredients. Fascinating. One of the things we've been alluding to in this conversation, uh, we talked about, you know, who is going to pay for it and the degree to which consumers want to pay. Uh, and, and that's certainly something that I think is, is worth looking at, but also what the role of investors have in this entire process. Um, you know, any comments that you'd like to share on those topics? I, I can just uh, make an observation. I think it's been fascinating to see the rise of ESG investing 
Um, now, the definition of what that you know entails is pretty broad. So here we've been really talking about uh, some really great topics around carbon footprint, but also waste and water use and and land use um, that as he has has referred to. But you know, I, I think the estimates are just mind-boggling. A trillion dollars, you know, of funds dedicated. I think this year in 2020 in the U.S. Um, it's over $70 billion of ESG uh, investing. So this is going to get a lot of attention and, and create sort of those economic signals that, that, you know, not that the companies that are on, on this call need it because it's certainly the right thing to do, but I think it's going to create a real momentum, not to mention, you know, what's happening uh, in the, with the Biden administration. And they're all in, you know, all of government is engaged in the issue of climate action. And so you combine that with the investment uh, dollars that are out there to be dedicated towards uh, ESG investing and looking at companies that have best practices, companies that are living, living the values, but also delivering on them very concretely in, you know, shorter timescales. I think that's going to create a lot of momentum. So, you know, it's positive, but it's also important that, you know, that it's clearly defined as to to what they're looking for. And then naturally investors are very, you know, they're also focused on the returns. So you're, you're going to need to deliver both the ESG component, but also the returns as well. So that's, that's sort of our perspective at EY. And therein lies the challenge. Yeah, right? I agree. Um, I, I echo um, Deborah's comments. You know, I think climate change remains the most most pressing global uh, challenge facing the environment and, and the society as a whole. And, and, you know, we need collective action. We can't do this alone. We need the partnerships and the partnerships across the whole value chain, but also partnerships with the governments, uh, with our investors. And, you know, what we're seeing is that investors and analysts are increasingly, increasingly reckoning with these, uh, with these questions, you know, recognizing that climate risk could be an investment risk, but at the same time, also being aware that this could also be an opportunity, uh, you know, for, for a company to be innovative, to remain uh, competitive, differentiated, and ambitious. And I think the more, um, you know, we are given an opportunity to sustainability text with the right along the way, I think the better, um, you know, that dialogue could be, because ultimately what we're seeing is that, you know, our investors are looking for us to um, to demonstrate that that leadership, but at the same time, as Deborah mentioned, um, to also to remain competitive. Um, and, you know, sustainability makes business sense. So for, for us, um, uh, it, it's it's incredibly relevant um, and and um, yeah definitely something that uh, we continue to engage more so with our with our uh, investors and um, you know earlier this year we actually launched our inaugural ESG report because again there was that growing demand for transparency and disclosure and that that growing need for really understanding why do companies do what they do you know how do they set their uh, targets how are those linked to their uh, sustainability their business continuity and I think again coming out of the pandemic all these things are um, really becoming much more clear how interlinked they are. Which, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're running out of time, but I, I guess I had one kind of pressing question I wanted to ask, which you all sort of alluded to. Who's going to pay for all this in the end? If I think, I think Deborah, you were saying that the amount that consumers are willing to pay is is trivial. Who is going to pay for this? Is it is it going to be something that's going to impact margins going forward? Uh, is a tax is going to come down. What, 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 what's the solution? I may, maybe Kevin, I see, I see you nodding. Uh, can you help? 
I was nodding because you said Deborah's name. I was saying, oh, good. She gets she gets to take this one. But okay, I'll give it a shot. Um, may, maybe I'll combine the last two questions, which were how should the investor look at it and who bears the cost? And and I, I said earlier, uh, with very few example, uh, with very few exceptions, customers are kind of reticent to to foot a bill. Um, we see some some examples like Loop, which is a technology we've just introduced to the Canadian marketplace uh, that is a reusable packaging. So it's in some European markets, it's in the US, um, it's in Canada now through us. And, and uh, that actually requires people to pay a little bit more for a reusable container that they can then uh, send back to uh, to the brands that that fill them. So that, that would be an example. We've certainly seen uh, customers willing to pay for things like um, uh, our free from line, which is antibiotic free, and it, it, it pays greater attention to ingredients. So it's not that they won't pay. It's that we probably shouldn't rely on them to pay. And, and so therefore, if you look at Canadian retailers, we, we have been uh, uh, experts in managing inflation. We've been experts in manage, managing regulatory costs and will remain that way. And, and so if you think of, uh, you know, when we set out to do this, it was a CSR initiative. Um, it was, we thought it was the right thing to do. Uh, there was, there were efficiencies to gain, but really it was a place where we could make a difference. And so we got about the efficiencies and we got about things like, uh, uh, investments in certain pieces that were required to lower our footprint. We got into operational change, like shifting our load and, and actually the efficiency has been a benefit to us. But if you look bigger picture, there are many sort of policy-related uh, challenges that we face uh, that, that need to be offset, and we need to plan well. And planning well means putting it into a business case, and, um, and then overarching the entire piece is just running a better business. So, you know, we, we have a, uh, a three-year track to save about a billion dollars through process and efficiency, which includes everything from smarter operations to how we use data. Th that is a, a, a you know, fund against which you can uh, uh, start to make some investments to run a better business, which has a better impact on, on your footprint. Um, if I can jump back to the investor piece of it, um, I, I think it's welcome. So this is where you shift from CSR, which historically I always say was sort of prose in paragraphs in a CSR report to uh, put, put your number in an Excel spreadsheet and we will judge you through the lens of ESG, whether you're doing good, badly or indifferent. And, and uh, uh, that, that's welcome, but so is greater clarity on it. And I mentioned earlier, there are many Canadian companies making carbon commitments and net neutral commitments and the range of how they're expressing it and explaining it and benchmarking it is, is all over the map. So I think the more clarity we can get on that, the more reliable we can build business cases. If we understand the expectation, we can go achieve it and, and we can manage it. Um, you know, in that respect, I guess the BlackRock letter is welcome. Things like TCFD, I, I can't remember if it was Deborah or Eski that was saying, TCFD actually says, okay, go identify your risks and plan. Well, that's business planning. And, and it was Deborah that said sort of sustainability is business planning and, and couldn't agree more. So, so in that respect, I think there are toggles to pull. And then the last point I'd make on an investors is, you know, our mindset was do CSR things because they're good. That's changing to, uh, you know, there's valuation in de-risking your business if you do it well. And also, I guess, fundamentally, the ESG point of capital will flow toward companies that are responsive to stakeholder 
demands or interests. And I think uh, I think that's where we are today is sort of a recognition of that piece and and an action plan against that. And the more we have reliable um, conditions, whether it's reliable policies, a reliable grid, a reliable re relationship with the people that operate the grid, reliable definitions from the SG community about what it is we're trying to pursue here, uh, reliable technology, which we don't yet have. This idea of sort of ticking away at the things that need to be reliable before we can really put our might to this. I think that's where we are today. And that's what stands for law blah. That's what stands between us uh, as a generationally thinking business and sort of a concrete commitment to this is where we can definitively go, you know, watch us go. That, that, that's brilliant. Um, Izzy, I'm, I'm very aware that we, we've slightly overrun, but are you able to give the, the kind of 60 second answer to, to who's going to pay for this? Um, well, I couldn't agree with Kevin more. Um, so maybe just quickly from ABI's point of view, you know, we are building a sustainability strategy that is core to our business, but we are fully aware that that requires systems thinking and systems approach. So, you know, business cannot shoulder this alone, uh, whether it's the cost or the, the action itself. And, you know, I think as the technology develops and the science advances and, and we have the right regulatory backbones in place, like we're seeing in certain markets, the costs will eventually come down. Um, so I think my answer would be um, it depends, you know, it depends on the market, the brand, the consumer. We are seeing, you know, in, in consumer research that, that some are saying they're willing to pay more for sustainable products. But at the same time, as more of these products and approaches and processes become the norm and they become mainstream, they become table stacks and stakes and non-negotiable. So I think the consumers and the stakeholders alike will continue to set the bar higher for us as we continue to evolve our thinking and our approach and, and, and you know, champion technology and innovation. Um, but yes, as, as Kevin mentioned, this is about, you you know, um, what actionable insights can we get out of them? How do we drive that, that sustainability strategy today and into into the future to, to really create that resilience and that, that competitive advantage? So uh, that's, yeah, that would be my uh, my answer to uh, to your question. I, I don't know, Deborah, would you agree? No, I, I agree. And I know we're, we're at time. I would say it's such a big question, though. Uh, it is a huge question because, you know, I know we've been talking about customers sort of in, in sort of North America here. And but, uh, you know, the rest of the world, this whole issue is going to get discussed uh, because in the developing uh, economies, I mean, uh, they can't afford a lot of basic things. And so asking them to pay a premium for, you know, uh, cleaner products or whatever, um, is going to be a hard sell. So who pays is going to be important. Climate change is a global issue. Solutions are going to have to be localized. And and who bears that cost is, is going to be the debate probably of this century. Um, but I think the easy thing to get is what Kevin says, which is, you know, get it through driving efficiency in your own business, because actually that's that's money you can bring into your business, make that business case, internalize it and drive cost savings. And then, you know, you, you're really you're really paying for it yourself internally. That's probably the first step. And then the next step of, you know, what governments will do and how those costs will be shared between the public and and, and companies uh, is going to be something that we'll have to you know, face here in the next uh, next decade. Well, I, I, I'd just like to thank you all. Thank, thank, thank you, Deborah, Ezeke, Kevin. This has been absolutely fascinating. I was saying to you beforehand that I think Ari and I were a bit nervous when we when we start out on this. We didn't quite know how it was going to going to pan out, and it's panned out way ahead of our best expectations. Uh, thanks entirely to the three of you. So uh, this has been brilliant. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.
Thank you, everyone, for your time this morning. Thank you. This has been an RBC Capital Markets production. To hear more from RBC Capital Markets, you can subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Amazon, or visit our website, rbccm.com. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.